as that bywiring was going, and I heard someone, I think over here, uh, singing along, uh, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And at the very same time, I heard someone else cringing because they never want to hear that song again because uh, it reminds them of youth group or something. Anyway, we're thinking about joy. Father, please fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing today. Amen. Well, it's New Year's Eve and uh, tonight the, uh, the fireworks are going to be going off over the harbour and a very large proportion of, uh, of Sydney will be out in person or be tuning in to watch the spectacle. That may be why you planned at the start of last year to come to 8 o'clock service uh, just for this very day. Is that, no? Uh, are you staying up for it tonight? Or is that something that, that that's, that's for those young people, right? Uh, for a lot of people, just, just being there and being part of it is going to bring a great deal of enjoyment. It's a night to party hard and celebrate uh, with dancing, drinking and kissing strangers and who knows what else. But even though they'll be wishing each other Happy New Year, like so many other things, the joy uh, for most of them is going to vanish pretty quickly. Uh, for some, the joy will be gone tomorrow because they'll wake up with a hangover <laughs> or they've had an accident on the way home or something else untoward has happened. Uh, for others, it'll go in two days' time when they have to go back to work and get back to the grind of life. For others, it'll be a bit longer. Uh, the, the, the happiness will wear off once all their resolutions that they've made tonight that we're intending to do have failed that weight loss program, that exercise, whatever it happens to be. We wish each other happiness and joy is something that everyone wants, but so often when it comes, it's fleeting. How much of the joy of last week's Christmas presents have worn off already? One of the dominant philosophies that underlies our present age is something called hedonism. That's a big word, uh, but it's the idea that the whole point of life, the meaning of life is to seek pleasure and enjoyment, that that's really what life is all about. I mean, you've heard people talk like that, you know, just what makes you happy. And so if that's the point of life, how do we make decisions about what to do tonight or to do next week or uh, decisions about job or family? Well, do whatever makes you happiest and everyone else can Go jump and bar the consequences. And that's Sydney, isn't it? That's the society we live in. We're a city of people who are living for our pleasure, which, which, which we find in all sorts of different things, right? Some exciting, some adrenaline rushy kind of things. Others are just sewing, reading a good book. For others, it's gambling. Others, it's cruises. And for some, it's sleeping around. For others, it's food, the old staples, so some it's the new food experiences I want to taste that I've never had before, uh, new experiences, adventures, seeing new things. Uh, uh, you can hear the hedonism at weddings and birthday parties in the speeches as the speaker wishes for, well they don't know what to wish for them anymore so they just wish for the happy couple or the person, we wish for whatever you wish for, we wish for whatever makes you happy because actually we can't think of anything else to live for or that 
might be beneficial for them. And yet the paradox is that the more we've embraced hedonism, the more unhappy we've become. The latest ABS National Health Survey has revealed higher levels of anxiety uh, and uh, psychological distress and depression than ever before in this country. It's at plague levels. Something like one in five Australians will be suffering from one of those things in the next 12 months. Okay, and it's going to shift across the population. There's going to be bouts of these things. Millions of Australians suffer from one or more of them. And you know who the vast majority of those, what's the biggest part of the demographic? 15 to 25-year-olds. People who are in the prime of their lives, who've still got the energy to stay up to midnight tonight, unlike us, and, and they seem to have everything before them and who've, by and large, embraced hedonism. But they're desperately unhappy. Today we're thinking about joy and we're thinking about it from a Christian point of view. Does God even want us to feel joy? Does he care? Is our joy important to him? Uh, Christians have been accused for a long time now of being the killjoys in our society. We're the people who don't want anyone to have any fun, right? Ourselves or anyone else. Uh, is that right? Is God anti-joy? Or if he's not, does he, does he give us clues as to where to find true and lasting joy that won't just disappear in a couple of days' time? Are there false paths to joy which which promise a lot but actually don't deliver. And what happens if, as Christians, we don't feel joy at least most of the time? Is there something we can do about that? And my prayer is, as we ponder the Scriptures today, that we're going to be buoyed, lifted up by what God has to say. Now, over January, we're doing something a little bit different to normal and we're looking at a variety of different emotions and what the, the whole of the scriptures have to say about them. Uh, how, how to think about emotions, uh, particular ones, when they're right and helpful, when they're damaging and sinful. Uh, how do you cultivate the right kind of emotions and feelings and how do you deal with the problematic ones? So before we get into this particular issue of joy, I want to say two things about feelings by way of prepping us for the whole of summer. The first thing to keep in mind is this, how you are emotionally feeling at any given moment is a terrible guide as to whether you are a Christian or not. Uh, don't hear me wrong today that if you're not walking out of church on air after the service today, that means you're not a Christian. Or on the other hand, if you're feeling great, then that means that all's well between you and God. It, it's no guide. No guide. You imagine a train that's got uh, three compartments. Uh, one's labelled facts, one's labelled faith, uh, and one's feelings. You want to have a good and solid, reliable faith, don't you? You want to know where you stand with God, and so you're in that middle carriage. Which way should you face? Where should you put your faith? In the facts or in your feelings? What do you reckon? In the facts, right? Feelings change. 
and, and depending on a lot of things. And you can be up and down many times over a year, some of us for many times over a day, right? We're roller coastering. If you want to stand firm as a Christian and know where you are with God, keep your eyes on the facts of Jesus, that he's God become man, uh, that we celebrated last week, that he's died for you, that he's risen from the grave, that he reigns as king in heaven. He's promised to take you there one day. If you spend your whole life looking back over your shoulder, worrying about whether your feelings are telling you your faith is real or not, you're going to wobble and feel very insecure, aren't you? And unfortunately, a lot of Christians do that. But the second thing to note about feelings is they're not unimportant. They're not insignificant either. They're part of the train. God has made us as feeling beings. And as you trust the facts about Jesus and the world and yourself, how you feel will start to change. As we face the facts of salvation, God gives us a new heart and starts to mould us and shape us, not just so we do the right things that honour him, but so that we even feel the right things too. And one of the most central of those things he wants us to feel is joy. Not, not cheap thrills, but a deep, soul-satisfying gladness that underpins our lives uh, and gives him all the glory and fuels us to keep going. If you search through the Bible just for the word joy, uh, do you think that appears lots of times or just a few? Lot, there's heaps, right? Uh, 236 times in its pages, you'll find the word joy. And if you search for the word rejoice, you'd find that in another 208 places. That is, it's one of the main themes of the Bible. Uh, and there are plenty of other words too, like delight, and happiness, pleasure, satisfaction, and gladness, which God's all for. And the first thing that stands out as you read through all the references is that joy is central to God himself. God is a God of joy. And the greatest delight that God has is in the relationships of the Trinity, in the Godhead. God is not a simple unity. He's not Allah just there by himself. Uh, God exists as three persons, one God, but who all share the same eternal qualities and who are not separate to each other. They're not three gods, but the persons of God relate to each other and delight in each other. When God the Son came into the world, which we just celebrated last week, God the Father openly declared in an audible voice, not that, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I mean, you know he said that at the baptism of Jesus. He said it again at the transfiguration. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. I delight in him. The father takes delight in the son, takes pleasure in him, is pleased with him. In Isaiah, God spoke about him coming when he said, Behold my chosen in whom my soul delights. That delight was always there before the creation of the world. It's always been there in in God himself. And in fact, that delight that God has in the relationships of the Trinity and the enjoyment of each other spills out into the world that he's made. Now, 
in fact, joy is built into the very purposes for which he made the world. He made us for his own joy and pleasure, but he also has eternal purposes for our joy. You can see that in the first reading that we had in Isaiah 35, and John might sing it for us. Uh, the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and the ransom will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Shall flee away. <laughs> now, now, we'll come back to our joy in a moment and how we can have that kind of gladness even now. But before that, it's worth seeing exactly what it is that God finds joy in in this world. He finds joy in the relationships of the Trinity, but he actually finds joy in this world. But it's always in people who are in right relationship with him and in right relationship with each other. So he's just a smattering of things through the Old Testament, through the New Testament as well. When God made the world in Genesis chapter 1, at every stage of creation, what did he declare? Good, this is good. But it wasn't until he created people on day six, male and female together in his image, that he was completely satisfied. And he said, it's very good. You can picture the smile on his face. In the, in the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai, we, we got up to Mount Sinai, didn't we, in Exodus? God gives the law from then on. But there's something particularly striking about uh, the, the law that's given that God says he delights in, that he finds joy in. Uh, anyone but Aaron have a guess what that might be? Uh, he, he read it yesterday, so he cheated. Uh, <laughs> uh, well... It's the smell of the sacrifices. It's kind of this weird thing. It just keeps coming up. Uh, and so uh, in the burnt offering uh, in Leviticus chapter 1, a bull is brought to the priests who prepare it and then burn it on the altar. In verse 9, it is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Meat and fire. That's a great smell, isn't it? <laughs> uh, election day sausage sizzles. You can smell it and, you know, it makes you glad to be voting, right? Because the smell of meat in the air cooking, the, uh, the roast lamb in the oven. Uh, I'm starting to salivate now just thinking about it. Uh, <clears throat> or in Leviticus 2, in the grain offering, it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The, the smell of bread baking in the oven or pancakes sizzling on the on the stovetop and on it goes through all the chapters of Leviticus as it presents all the different offerings each one of them is an aroma pleasing to the Lord chapter after chapter but actually it's not that God has a nose and he's delighting in the fragrance of the fumes that somehow those fumes are reaching up to heaven so much as what it is that the sacrifices represent they're about right relationship between him and his people. So, in fact, years later when the nation of Israel has turned against God and their religion has become one of just going through the religious motions with no heart towards him and no interest in him, they, they would go through the motions thinking to keep God off their back 
and God says about that, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assembly are a stench to me, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, the things that are a pleasing aroma to God normally, I will not accept them. They are a stench to him. As good as the smell of cooking is, what God really delights in is people with a humble and contrite spirit who love him and want to serve him. But then there's one other key thing we're told about that God delights in, rejoices over. It's in Ezekiel chapter 18. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Some people imagine that God is a sadist who's up there in heaven looking down, hoping to spot the mistakes we make so that he can get us. Um, you know, he crosses off the list and he's going to cackle with glee when that happens. <laughs> that net stuffed up, yes, she's gone. <laughs> you know. yeah, sorry. You should, you should erase your internet history. No, so <laughs> no I haven't. Been. Anyway... <laughs> that he's delighting to bring judgment and destruction. God does those things, but he finds no delight in them. It's God's joy and delight when people turn back to him, even after a whole life against him. Didn't Jesus say the same thing in the parable of the lost son, the wicked, degenerate son who's wasted everything, and wanted nothing to do with his heavenly father who thought, you know, hedonism was the way to go and so squandered everything and ended up in misery, comes home, not sure what he's going to find. <coughs> well, it was a long way off. His father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him quick, bring the best robes and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. God rejoices, he delights when people, whoever they are, from whatever background, come to their senses and repent. Fills him with joy. That is when they acknowledge that they've been heading the wrong way without him, they apologise to God for being so stupid as to try and do life without him and then they turn back and receive his incredible mercy. God delights in that, absolutely delights in that. In fact, such is the joy that God takes in that, it drives him to even pay the most terrible cost to make it possible for people to do that. And find forgiveness. There's this very strange thing. The whole reason we're doing emotions over summer is because we had a fight about Hebrews chapter 12 on staff attack last year. For this, this little paragraph here. Have a look. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfect, perfecter of our faith. Here's the bit that we were arguing about. I really want you to notice it. For the joy that lay before him, 
he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus go to the cross and die such an excruciating death and bear the wrath of his heavenly Father? Well, of course, we'd say we'd decreed for our salvation. That's why he came. He came to save us from our sins, pay for them. It's true. But what's his ultimate goal? For the joy that lay before him. Isn't that strange? He's not a masochist. But you get what I'm saying? Jesus' ultimate purpose in dying was, was joy. Whose joy? I take it it's his own. But you might say, well, doesn't that turn the love of God into selfishness? If he's just seeking his own joy, was he really loving us? Well, of course he was loving us because his joy was found in saving sinners, even at the cost of his own life. Jesus' pursuit of joy and Jesus loving others by giving his life are not at odds with each other. It's, it's vital to grasp. If you want to have a life of true joy, you've got to guess, grasp this, and Jesus knew it. He didn't pursue his happiness at the expense of other people. He pursued his ultimate happiness through dying for other people. To include them in it. it it's at total odds with our society. The hedonism of our city says... Do what you want, whatever makes you happy, blow everyone else and blow the consequences. It doesn't matter what others think, they have no right to tell you what to do or who to be, so just do what you like and they can go jump. But Jesus, the Son of God, in pursuit of joy, didn't do it at the expense of other people, he pursued happiness through dying through other people. Here is the secret to true joy. It can only be found in selflessness and not in selfishness. <laughs> and in fact, that very attitude and model of Jesus of pursuing ultimate joy through ultimate sacrifice for others is precisely what it is that Hebrews there is calling on us uh, to look to and model our lives on. Let's start off everything that hinders Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? By focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who for joy went to the cross. So let's, let's think about ourselves and our joy as Christians because according to Scripture, joy isn't just central to who God is, but it's also central to Christian living now. We're meant to be filled with joy. Uh, Jesus, for his own joy, saves you, but he's also saved you for a life of God-honouring joy. In 1 Thessalonians 5, there's, there's another curious command. Uh, there's this great long list of things that God's calling us to do. And uh, you wouldn't be surprised. Anyway. They're, they're the repentant life, if you like. Comfort the discouraged. Honour your leaders. Don't repay evil for evil. Always pursue good. Like they're challenging things. The things we know are right, but no one wants to do them. <laughs> but that's followed by this. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
That's surprising, isn't it? It is God's will for you that you always be filled with joy and thankfulness. If that, it's what he wants for you. He wants, it's what he wants from you. But again, the hedonist looks at the list of things before it, you know, don't repay evil for evil and do good all the time and stuff, and thinks that's got to be a contradiction. That living selflessly and rejoicing have got to be at odds with each other. But they're not, because God knows that real joy is found in selflessness, not selfishness. Notice also something else about it, the, the first two words. They're a command. Right? It's, not, it's not optional, right? Rejoice always. It's, God's telling us to do it. Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's not uh, a hopeful wish that God has for us. It's an order. Rejoice always. Or else. <laughs> That's it. Um, now, that order tell us something about the nature of emotions, shouldn't it? That somehow it is possible to control them rather than letting them control you. And we're just going to see that over summer. And on this issue of joy, it's obviously something that's possible for us to be doing. Rejoice and rejoice always. God wouldn't waste his breath otherwise. You might not think that that's possible right now. I don't know what you're going through. You might look at your life and circumstances and think, well, if only God knew what was going on for me, he would never tell me that. 2023 has been a tough year for a bunch of people in our congregation. Family tragedy. One person, well, one couple have lost three parents this year. Relational difficulty, marital discord, pain, sickness, job losses, and what do we do now? How is it possible to live a life of joy in the midst of it all? Is it just a matter of pretending, shutting our eyes, blocking out the world, and, and, and saying it doesn't exist? No, it doesn't exist. Or, or turning up to church with a big fake smile and saying, I'm great, how are you? <laughs> is it a matter of just trying to see silver linings everywhere? I know that's terrible, but, you know, maybe... Not at all. There's a time and a place for grief. There's a time and a place for anger, as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time. But it's even impossible in the midst of all those things happening to rejoice. How? Well, there's three very specific things that God directs us to call to mind, to keep thinking about and considering, to specifically rejoice in. Number one, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Or in chapter 4, verse 4, just to ram the point home, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. If you didn't hear me the first time, always. <laughs> We're getting all the old classics. <laughs> It was also in our reading in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, 
though you've not seen him, you love him, though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You want a life that's filled with joy always. You want to be able to rejoice always. Rejoice in God. Rejoice that you belong to him. Rejoice that he's called you by his incredible love and mercy into his family. That he's paid for you who were the lost son or daughter who deserved nothing. He's paid for you to come home and that rejoice that he rejoices in you. Rejoice that you have a priceless treasure in being part of his kingdom. Rejoice that your sins are forgiven. We might not be able to forgive ourselves, but God can forgive us. You're his. Rejoice that he's yours. Rejoice that nothing can snatch you from his hand or take his love from you, neither height nor depth or any other thing. Rejoice in the Lord. And when you do that, when you start to do that, you also begin to rejoice in the things that God rejoices in. Like when you see and hear of other people coming to their senses and finding security and love in Christ Jesus. That is the greatest joy, right? There's nothing better. I don't know, I like board games, but man, seeing people come alive is amazing. <laughs> the second thing that we are then to find our joy in, according to God, is other Christians. In fellowship with them, and in seeing them flourishing in their faith. Whether you know them or not, just seeing Christians going well, that, that ought to bring us great joy. When Paul wrote to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians as well, he couldn't help but talk about the joy that he found in them. He was in jail, in miserable circumstances, suffering Roman detention, but he was filled with joy knowing that they were standing firm in faith, in their love and support for him, and in their commitment to keep going as Christians publicly, even in the midst of aggressive and violent opposition. Which brings us to the third and final thing that God tells us to find our joy in. And it's the most peculiar one. Rejoice in your sufferings. That's weird, isn't it? Particularly your suffering as believers. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, <laughs> because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can you rejoice when you're being insulted and hurt if you're being punched for being a Christian? Well, rejoice because you're in good company. The company of God's people down through the ages who stood firm in the midst of that kind of suffering. In fact, you're in the best of company because that's what Jesus himself enjoyed for his own joy. Not masochistic, ooh, I like pain, but wow, what an end. He was working towards but it's not just that we're in good company 
We can also rejoice in suffering because, as our reading said, suffering is the proving ground for our faith. That's what 1 Peter was talking about. So don't grumble and whinge when it comes. Instead, be like the apostles in Acts chapter 5 who they'd been arrested and they were facing court, but they walked out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering for the dis- for disgrace for the name of Jesus. That's a radical mindset shift, isn't it? They weren't thinking in terms of temporary pleasure and what would give them instant gratification. They found their joy in something much more long-lasting, something eternal in Jesus Christ, in belonging to him, and they counted it a privilege to suffer as one of his people. You could say that they had the attitude of Christ Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. So that's how you find joy and how you find it all the time. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in his people, rejoice in suffering. But before I finish, I want to very quickly mention a few things that are true joy killers. Let me list them. Uh, Indulge these things and you'll be on a path to misery. And they're things that a lot of Christians are pursuing and it's why they never experience this joy in the Lord. I'm going to put the list up here. Greed. Selfishness. Self-indulgence. I mean, they're the opposite, aren't they, to what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was pursuing his joy by selflessness. Uh, unrepentant sin. I mean, David was caught out. He, you know, he's miserable. The guilt, the shame. And he prayed in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me, right? Sin may look tempting, but it's miserable. Uh, bitterness. Harboring that. Worry. Some of those things might give you instant gratification. It's not without reason. The Bible talks about them as the fleeting pleasures of sin. They are fleeting and they will leave you with nothing, just an empty shell facing judgment. Does God want you to be filled with a glorious and inexpressible joy? Yes, he does. Do you want to live a life of soul-satisfying joy that will guard you and keep you going through whatever may come. I hope you do. Well, where is your joy going to be located? In the temporary pleasures of this world or in the all-satisfying person and ways of God? Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Why don't you make it your New Year's resolution today? along with weight loss or exercise or read a good book, if whatever it is, to go deep with God. Go deep into his word to know him more intimately, that you might delight in him more. Go deep in your prayer and ask him to, to glorify yourself in you as you find your joy in him, rather than just asking for all the instant gratification things that we normally ask for in our prayers. Ask him to show you the path to deep riches of joy in him. Go deep in dealing with any of those joy killers, 
that are on the screen of sin or bitterness or greed. Ask him to give you the way to deal with them and the strength and the courage to do it. Go deep with his people rather than just having shallow connections with them all. Go deep with planning your timetable so that your whole life might be a pleasing aroma to God, a fragrant offering to him. This is the path to true joy. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. Father, thank you for your purposes to bring joy to us. And so we pray, please, that you'll help us to find that joy in you, to rejoice always, even in the hard times, knowing that you are great, our destiny is wonderful, that you are our Father, that we have each other, and that you are at work. And so, Father, teach us not to chase the fleeting pleasures of this world, but pursue real joy, lasting joy. Help us to have this all-satisfying joy inside, this gladness in you, in Jesus' name. Amen.